0: You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Well, it's that
1: time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect, entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good.
0: So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normalpeople, that's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code normalpeople for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com, promo code normalpeople. Welcome everyone to this episode of The Bible for Normal People.
1: Today we're going to dive into one of the two things we say we talk about quite a bit here on the podcast. We talk about what is the Bible? And what do we do with it? And with that, what do we do with it? You know, we've talked about concepts like inspiration, revelation, authority, and hopefully we'll maybe get back into some of those because I doubt we've plumbed the depths of those concepts. But as I was reflecting, one thing we haven't really talked about are just some of the key concepts in interpretation of the Bible, or, or what do we mean when we ask, what does the Bible mean? And I've been thinking about this quite a bit. As I finish up my my book, I'm I'm working on I have just a few weeks left here to get that in. But I just got the wheels turning here about what we mean when we talk about what the Bible means and and just the basics of biblical interpretation. And so there's of course been many, many books written on uh, this. We call it the scholarly term for this is hermeneutics. But it's basically how we interpret the Bible. And what are the key principles or concepts behind that? So I have five points I want to make about this biblical interpretation, and again we're just going to be scratching the surface so there's lots i won't say so i'm just i make we we just you know provide these disclaimers for those of you who want to write us and say, Yeah, but you forgot about this, and how would you say it that way and that's oversimplifying well, we know that. So thank you very much. You if you if you'd rather just not send us those uh, emails and messages, that'd be okay because we we understand that. But if you, you know, are, you know, feel compelled, feel free to keep sending those. But the first thing I want to talk about, and these are really kind of cascading points, so they they tie together. The first is the way I'll say it is the root of biblical interpretation is author intention. So let's Take a minute and and look at what that means. The root of biblical interpretation is author intention. And by author intention, we just mean what was the original people who put pen to paper or whatever they had at the time to paper, the editors, what was the intention? What were they trying to communicate? And that's a really important principle when we're trying to interpret the Bible. It's sort of the root of what we're asking any relationship or conversation with someone, you want to understand what that person who's talking to you is trying to communicate. The Bible means more than what the author intended to say, but it doesn't mean less. So, the beginning of biblical interpretation is doing this hard work of understanding what the author was trying to say. And, you know, this is important because it keeps us from, I think, the great fear of more conservative uh, biblical interpreters is that we're going to make the text, make the Bible mean whatever we want it to mean, that we're going to unmoor it or, you know, pull up the anchor of the author's intention, and it now is just a free-for-all where we get to make the Bible mean whatever we want it to mean. So, folks like John MacArthur and others in the past, at least in my tradition, would have been, you know, that's how we end up compromising with the culture and uh, and sort of diving into the ethics of our day instead of a biblical ethic, whatever that means, is that we're, you know, we're we're not going to respect what the author intends. But that is really important when we're talking about conversation with the Bible and, and interpreting it and what it means. However, the challenge with getting to the author's intention is none of the authors are alive. So that's going to be a problem. Not to mention the fact that we don't actually know who wrote a good chunk of the books of the Bible. They're anonymous. They don't they're not attributed to anyone. We don't know who wrote them. And then to add on to that, we have this problem, well, this challenge this fact that the books were also edited together and redacted together by ed- by editors or redactors. So We have to take that into account when we're talking about biblical interpretation. We don't have access to the authors. We don't know who wrote a lot of them, and we have these editors. But that doesn't give us an excuse to not – you know, we can't give up, because the text itself is still trying to communicate something. So scholars have developed these tools and ways to get at what the author intended by looking at the text and looking outside the text. So, when we talk about the root of biblical interpretation is author intention, I think that's just the first thing to remember. When we're reading our Bible, it is a helpful question to ask, well, what, what are they trying to communicate here to the audience? And that's important to keep in mind so that we're not just making the Bible mean whatever we want it to mean. The, the second point I want to make is if the, if the root of biblical interpretation is author intention, then the author's context matters. And we mean that in two different ways. So again, these tools that scholars use, looking at the literary context, meaning what does uh, these words and phrases and paragraphs mean in the context of the book itself, and the historical context, meaning how does this book fit next to other books at the same time period or other artifacts, other things that we've discovered about that time, how does this square or fit within that so, the author's context matters, literarily and historically, if we want to understand what the author meant. I mean, this is pretty uh, simple. We would we would assume this in our day and age, that if I'm talking to someone, that you would want to know what the context is in which I'm saying it, and uh, you have to already have a lot of context historically for what I'm trying to say as well. So, Let's look at a little bit of this. So, the first is looking at a particular book. And remember, in the Bible, there are 66 individual books. Now, there – I would – okay, I don't know where I stand on this exactly, but I would say – my tradition would say that if you want to know what Paul means in the book of Galatians, that you could look at the same theme and the same words, and you could find those, say, in the book of Joshua – And that Joshua can help you understand what Galatians means. And the reason we could do this was because we believe that the Bible is ultimately authored by God. And so, it's not really 66 books. It really is one book. And God is the ultimate author of that book. And so, in that, we're assuming, again, this uh, unanimous voice of the Bible, that what the book says, there's no diversity, in the Bible, there really is one message that's threaded throughout all 66 books. So, of course, if that's true, if God is the singular author, so to speak, at at the biggest level, then yeah, the context of Galatians is Joshua. We can look at the Old Testament, and it can help us interpret the New, and vice versa, and there's really no disconnect between those two. I'm certainly not in that camp. I I don't think that's true. I think you end up violating a lot of rules and respecting what the author was trying to say, say Paul in Galatians, if you're reading into it these themes in Joshua that maybe Paul had no intention of thinking about or connecting the dots to. So, I I wouldn't go that far. Uh, However, I, I wouldn't also go all the way to say that, you know, that certain books aren't in the water or influencing other authors, especially in the New Testament. So, there is some, uh, if if it warrants it, if it seems very explicit or clear, you know, there are often times, say, in the book of Matthew where Matthew makes it clear, like in chapter two, you know, Jesus has this episode down to Egypt, and then Jesus comes back up out of Egypt, and Matthew explicitly says, you know, this was to fulfill what the prophet Hosea says in, you know, Hosea chapter 11, out of Egypt I have called my son. Okay, well then... Obviously, Hosea is part of the context for what Matthew is reading as this narrative is being written. And so, it would be an important piece of that context to understand what Matthew means. Again, that's what we're after. What does Matthew mean? So, we want to look at all that to say, the literary context is important. We want to look at the particular book, look right before that book, Uh, look I'm sorry, look before whatever passage we're reading, look after what words you're using, what metaphors are being used, what's the argument that the author's trying to make. That will help us figure out what the author is intending to say. So, we want to look at that particular book. Then, I think, it's legitimate to look at other books in the Bible that perhaps would have influenced that author, and that would be really important. So, those are the the literary context of what we want to look at. So, again, just some tools for you as you're reading the Bible. Make sure you're looking at the author's intention. And how do you know that? Well, we can't go ask the author. The author's not with us anymore. But we can look at the context clues, look at that passage in relationship to other passages that are in the same book, look at the line of thinking, look at the argument that they're trying to make, trying to piece that together. A huge Uh, part of biblical interpretation isn't, though, just the literary context. We have to look outside that book and look at the historical context and look at the time period. And what else do we know about that time period? What archaeological discoveries have we found? What other books, uh, sacred writings, law codes, what other things have been, letters, do we have access to that help to shape what that uh, looks like? So, here are just a few examples of why uh, context matters. So, first, literarily. One of the examples I like to use is Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, just because we've all seen it on, like, a Nike sneaker for an athlete, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and usually, in our context, what that means is God's going to help me win this sporting event or help me do my best or whatever it is. So, that's kind of how it means in, in kind of pop Christian pop culture, I think. But if we look at Philippians 4 and the context that Paul is writing, he's basically in chapter 4 talking about the concern that the the people in Philippi have for Paul, and he is saying, thank you so much for your concern about me. You've been concerned, but you haven't had an opportunity to show it, and I really appreciate it. However, he says, I'm not saying this because <clears throat> I'm in need. I'm not saying this out of neediness, because I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I've found myself. You know, I, I know what it's like to be in need, and I know what it's like to have plenty of food. I've learned to be this—you know, the secret of contentment um, in all my situations, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, that's the context. It's really important for what Paul's really trying to say, because it's interesting that we've taken it to mean Paul is saying we can accomplish all these things through Christ, because Christ gives us strength to accomplish a lot of things, when the context here is about contentment. It's clear that Paul is saying he's learned to be content in every situation, whether he wins or loses, whether he's well-fed or hungry, whether he's living in plenty or in want. And he says, I can do this, and it's interesting, the NIV now translates as I'm pretty sure it didn't used to translate it this way, uh, but older versions would have said, I can do all things. So, that's the ambiguity. That's how we opened up the idea that it can mean something different, was it says, I can do all things. Well, we just pull that right out of context. And just on its own, sure, that means baseball games. It means whatever you want it to mean. I can do all things. What is all things? Well, all is all things. But now the translation is, I can do all this. Instead of all things, it's this, and it points us back to this idea of contentment. What does this mean? Oh, we just look there, and it points us there. So that's again really important when we're trying to understand what the Bible means is context, and so this is a good example where the biblical uh, the translators have changed it so that we understand how important that context is in Philippians chapter four. Now another example of maybe where we don't really know the author's intention. We have a lot of this in the in the Old Testament, but there's this really strange story in Exodus chapter four where it says, basically, at a a lodging place on the way, um, God meets Moses and sought to put him to death. And it it comes, this is like a really out of left field part of Exodus chapter 4. He's, you know, God's talking to Moses, and he says, when you go back to Egypt, um, see that you do all these miracles that I've put in your power, because... I want to harden Pharaoh's heart, and he's not going to let you go. You're going to take out your firstborn son um, and, you know, let let my firstborn son go. And if you don't, I'm going to kill your firstborn son, Pharaoh. And that's, that ends that. And then it says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. So out of left field. But then it gets weirder. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin, and if you want context for foreskin, you can just go Google that for yourself, and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So, God left him alone. It was then that Zipporah said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And then we just kind of move on in the narrative. It's, it's very strange, and I would say this is one place where it would be wonderful if we had access to the authors and we could just ask them, what were you trying to say here? And we have many theories, and there are lots of these things where scholars have theories, but we can't be definitive on what exactly is going on here. Um, what, what does it mean? What's the, what's the point? Why is it, is it here? And uh, so, that's one place where the, we look at the context, you know, we don't have other stories necessarily outside of the Bible where people are cutting off foreskins and touching feet with them, so we don't really have a lot of context, and we have to leave it sort of ambiguous there of what this means and how it fits. And again, there's theories, there's, reason, you know, thoughts about why, but in this case, we don't actually have anything explicit, and we don't have a lot to go on. Now, on the flip side, another example of where we have gained more context over the years and it has really made a difference in how we understand the author's intention is in Genesis and the creation story at the very beginning of Genesis. Again, without a lot of context, scholars would have simply seen this as a account of how the world was created and tried to put it into their context. So, a lot of times when we don't know what the author intended and we don't have a lot to go on in terms of the context in the ancient world, we just assume our own context and try to fit it there. And it didn't work really well in that case. And then we came uh, discovered these texts like Enuma Elish and the Epic of Gilgamesh that had very similar themes and components in those creation stories. And so Genesis wasn't unique, which sounded, you know, probably fear, you know, when I learned that Genesis wasn't unique, I was afraid, oh, what do you mean it's not unique? But what it does do is give us a wealth of information about how ancient people thought about creation in the beginning of the world, and it put a lot of information onto Genesis that we could then use to say, oh, we're pretty sure this now is what the authors were intending when they used these phrases. So, for instance, In the very beginning of Genesis, when the waters are separated, the the waters above from the waters below, we have this uh, thing called the rakia that separates it. That's what separates it. And for a long time, you can see this, if you look at the history of translations within that, what is that thing that separates the waters from the waters? It's interesting because you have many different attempts at translating this. In the NRSV, Translates it a dome, NIV, a vault, KJV, a firmament. The ESV is an expanse. The NLT is a space. The ISV is a canopy. So let there be a vault, let there be a firmament, let there be an expanse, let there be a canopy. The message just says, you know, Eugene Peterson, God spoke sky. So he's thinking it's sky. I appreciate the ICB, uh, I think that's a children's Bible that just said, then God said, let there be something to divide the water in two. So, the ICB is just being honest, like, we don't know. Let there be something. So, for a long time, we don't know what this is. We don't have the context of the information. But then, as we gather information about how the ancient world thought of creation through Enuma Elish, uh, Epic of Gilgamesh, and these other texts and understandings, we start to realize that they thought about The universe in a very different way, and they thought of this dome, this solid structure that separated the waters above from the waters below, and that's how they thought of how the world was made. And that shed all this light on our understanding of Genesis 1 and other texts like Job and Ecclesiastes that utilizes, and a lot of the Psalms that utilizes this creation language. So, those are examples from the Bible as to why the literary and historical context really matters when we're trying to interpret the bible what does it mean so the author's context matters so point one the root of biblical interpretation is author intention
0: did you know fast growing trees is the biggest online nursery in the u.s with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over two million happy customers in the u.s they have everything you could possibly want like fruit trees palm trees evergreens houseplants and so much more Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast-growing trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. when using the code normal people at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different.
1: There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own
0: path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a
1: community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzouk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People.
0: It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at
2: upsem.edu. Hey, everyone. My name is Ken from Denver, Colorado, and I'm part of the producers group here at the Bible for Normal People. This podcast is brought to you by supporters on the Patreon platform. For as little as $1 per month, you can be part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. One thing I appreciate about being part of the Patreon group is the opportunity to connect with others who seek to further their knowledge in faith and in the Bible. If you have gotten something from this free podcast, please do consider supporting Pete and Jared at patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people. If you aren't able to support the show financially, you can go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. That can go a long way to help others find us. One group in particular we want to thank is our producers group, who truly helped the podcast improve and make it what it is today. Thanks to David Krober, Logan Jansen, Laura Grant, Matt, Brad Harris, Ryan Morrison, Martin Brythopt, Ashley Timberlake. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. Now back to the podcast.
1: So when you're reading the Bible, it's important to start with that question. What did the author intend here? And if you're doing that, then point number two flows naturally that the author's context matters, right? The author's context matters. Now, the third point here is that we don't stop there, and this is going to be important, because in my upbringing, we were taught that the only thing that really matters when you're interpreting the Bible is the author intention and who the author was. But my third point is the fruit, Of biblical interpretation is reader reception. So, the root is author intention, but the fruit is reader reception, how we read the Bible. So, we as readers are important for meaning, for what the Bible means. So, when we say, what does the Bible mean, we don't just mean what did it mean then, not what the Bible meant, but we mean that in the present tense. What does the Bible mean? And we, as readers, are very important when we're going to ask the question of what the Bible means. So, again, for a long time, we used to just think that when we're talking about meaning, the only thing that mattered in that equation was the author's intention. And then we had writers and scholars, literary theorists like Stanley Fish and others who came along and started saying, no, the reader is just as important because meaning is in the relationship between the person who's communicating to someone and the person who's receiving that communication. So, it's a relationship. So, if we start seeing uh, the Bible as a relationship and our reading of the Bible as a relationship between the author and the readers, then we see that both both sides of the street are important. And we see this, this is a pretty obvious thing that we see in artistic endeavors all the time, right? When we talk about uh, songs or pieces of literature or movies we don't say that the only thing that matters the the only thing that can matters when we're talking about what it means is what the author intended. So if if Ed Sheeran had this particular story from his childhood in mind when he's writing this song, it's wrong and inappropriate for you to relate to that in your own way, and to have it be very meaningful and connected to your own memories and your own life and how it's helping you navigate your life in a different way. We wouldn't ever say that, and yet this is how we do it with the Bible all the time. Uh, So, you know, just allowing that to be a context, too, that, yes, I'm saying the Bible is kind of like that. The Bible is literature, and it's important to recognize that it's literature, So that when you're reading Chronicles of Narnia, the Lord of the Rings, these others, and you're relating to it and making new meaning and connecting it to your own life, that that's a valuable part of what it means. That's not disconnected from the roots of what the author intended. It's not, we get to make it mean whatever we want it to mean, but it's also not, it only can ever mean what the author intended it to mean. That's just not how literature and pieces of art, writing and communication work. Communication is a two-way street. There's a level of transparency where readers see their story in that story and relate to it, and that's actually valuable. We don't want to get rid of that. We don't want to dismiss it. In my tradition, we sort of tried to get rid of it, and I'll talk in a minute about the dangers of that. So, meaning is found between intent and impact, the intention of the author and the significance it has for the reader. So, when we say, you know, what does Jonah mean? What does the book of Jonah mean? Our experiences and personality and tradition will impact, inevitably, what it means for us. When we have an interpreter, meaning a pastor, someone at the front of the congregation interpreting it for us, their personality, their experiences, their tradition will impact the parts that they highlight or don't highlight, emphasize or don't emphasize, the pieces that they'll draw from, the context that they'll give it. You know, what context are they looking at? And that will all inform what they say Jonah means. So, that brings me to the fourth point, which is if authorial intent is the root, and that means the author's context matter, and the fruit is reader reception, then that means the reader's context matters. So, that's really important when we're interpreting things, is that we have to understand our position. We have to understand our context, where we're coming from. That's the danger, I would say, of more conservative uh, biblical scholarship or biblical theology is it doesn't recognize it has a context. And so, that's what usually people mean by objective. We have to be objective. What they usually mean is we have to try to not be human and try not to have a context. Well, you can't do that. We have to really recognize that we bring a lot of baggage, a lot of biases, a lot of context to the text when we're reading it. Even something so basic as language, and I think we've talked about this on numerous occasions on the podcast, language itself is a context. There are certain ways we think in the English language based solely on the fact that we speak English. You know, one of the examples of this is me growing up with the emphasis being on the individual's relationship with Jesus. It's about the individual. And so, because I inherited that tradition, when I went to the Bible and I read Paul and saying things like, you know, your body is a temple, you, a lot of you language, I took that you as me, individually. Now, why would I do that? Well, because you, in English, is singular and plural. When I talk about you as a group, I use the same word. So, there's an inherent ambiguity in the English for when I read my Bible. But in Greek... That's not true. We can tell the difference when Paul is talking singularly to an individual and plurally to a community. And most often, Paul is talking plurally to a community of faith. That's He's writing to the church at Philippi. He's writing to the Corinthians. He's writing to a group of people and talking communally to them. But English is a context I have that blurs that line. So, Already, my it's my context is making it more challenging to understand the authorial the author's intent. Paul, what Paul is trying to say. So, if I were to n- not be speaking in, in English, but maybe being gro- growing up speaking Greek or Koine Greek, what the New Testament was written in, it would have challenged perhaps my notion of it's just about me and Jesus, kind of my me and Jesus lone ranger Christian understanding of the faith. It would have challenged that, but my context didn't allow for that. So, it's really important to recognize all of the baggage that we bring to a text. And if we don't, that's really dangerous because the baggage is playing into our interpretation. We just aren't recognizing it. And that can be oppressive for people. So, we need the roots as a beginning place, but we need the fruits, our context, to keep the text alive. Now, I talked about the dangers of this. So, we're always looking at it from our perspective. And that can be a really good thing when we're talking about the fruits of biblical interpretation, right? So, when I'm reading The Lord of the Rings, I am just full force throwing my context and my baggage into that book. I am relating to it and I'm connecting to it. I don't really care what the author was trying to communicate. I don't really care that Tolkien was thinking of this when he wrote that about the orcs and the battle between good and evil. What I care about is how I'm connecting to it, right? But as a a biblical scholar, scholars have a different emphasis. They are interested in the roots. That's sort of their job, to put aside their baggage and their biases and come to the text as objectively as they can, right? So either way, we have to recognize our baggage, because if we're trying to be objective and just... Bracket out what the author was intending. What was Paul trying to communicate? If that's my only goal, I still need to know my baggage so that I can bracket it off and say, oh, I think I'm just bringing that in because I'm an English speaker or because I'm white or because I'm a man. So we have to make sure we're aware of our baggage regardless of what our intentions are and what we're trying to do, whether we're in the classroom doing research, writing a book on a scholarly uh, approach to the Bible. Whether we're sitting at the pew on Sunday morning. So, we'll get into that in a minute, because that leads me then to the, my fifth point, that because meaning is a relationship between the author's intention and the reader, there is no fixed meaning. There's no fixed meaning in the Bible. So, if someone ever tells you, I know exactly what the Bible means, you can call them a liar. And that comes to the fact that if we, if we extrapolate that out, not to get too abstract, but it really what we're saying is there's no absolute, there's no way we can access absolute truth. There's no absolute truth when it comes to interpreting the Bible. Why? Because we always and already and all the time come from a different position. We're bringing our baggage to how we experience the world, and we can't ever do anything about that. I will always look at the world through my particular lens. So, there's this ancient story, right, about these three blind men who are on a journey together and each happens on an object at the same time. One of the blind men bumps up against something that feels like broad and round like a tree trunk and announces it to everyone else. Hey, it's a tree trunk, everyone. Uh, A second blind man comes and takes another step and smacked in the face with something skinny and has a small tuft at the end. And this blind man says, you know, it's not a tree trunk, it's it's a rope. And the third blind man, wanting to settle things once and for all, of course, puts his hands out, feels something very hard and broad and tall and flat. So, what are you guys talking about? You need to get your hands checked, you know, by the doctor back at the village. It's not a rope. It's not a tree trunk. It's a, it's a wall. Now, you know, there's some good things about this story, including the, the overall point, you know, that we should be humble about what we think we know. We're all a little blind after all, and we might all experience the same thing, but from a different angle with a different perspective. Right. As one human being in a particular place and time, it's hard to know the whole story. So, that's going to be important. However, there's a, there's a problem I have with this story. The punchline of the story assumes that the person telling the story, me, I just told you the story, and that we, the reader, knows that it's an elephant. Right. The whole point is to put ourselves in the position of one of the blind men to say, oh yeah, we need to be humble. But at the end, the thrust of the point hinges on us nodding and all saying, oh, I see, you know, that was his leg, that was his tail, that was the side of his body. They were limited, but we can see the whole thing, right? So, the whole story depends on me being God in that story, that I can see the whole elephant and everyone else is, you know, these blind men are blind. But if we were the blind men, we wouldn't ever actually know necessarily that it's an elephant. Because we were only ever able to experience that one part of the whole. You know, what if in real life, none of us knows for sure, we don't know that we know that we know with absolute certainty that it's an elephant, right? So, all that to say, we're always looking at things from our own perspective, and when we interpret the Bible, that's no different, right? In fact, if we carry that story out a little bit, the best way to get the God's eye view is to accept and honor the diversity of all the readings that we find in our world right so if we it's the plurality of meaning that helps us understand the fuller meaning it's the collective meaning so i want to understand how an african context or an african man or an african woman reads this text of the bible differently than i do and how does the asian person and the person in hawaii and the person in texas and the you know the woman the child the older person as much diversity as we can understand in this world That's giving us more and more perspectives. We're adding more and more pieces to the puzzle, getting that fuller meaning of what the Bible means, because it means something different to uh, the gay woman in sub-Saharan Africa as it does to the white straight man in Europe. They're going to mean different things. And it's not that one's more legitimate than the other, or maybe it's not more, more correct or more right or more wrong. Uh, maybe there are better readings than others, and not as good readings. That if we mean that by respecting what the author intends, maybe we're getting further away from what the author intends. Maybe we're getting closer to what the author intends, but that's not to negate the validity of the reading. So when we're talking about biblical interpretation, we're not saying readers are irrelevant, but we're not also saying that they're the only things that matter. You know, we don't we we don't need to get rid of our context. Uh, Because if we get rid of our context, we get rid of the human element, which is what meaning is all about. If we get rid of the humanity, we're just robots, right? But we have to put that human element, our context, in its proper place and understand when we're putting it into the text and assuming that's what Paul meant. So, we got to let Paul be Paul and us be us. We have to respect that relationship. We can't enmesh ourselves in Paul and start assuming that we are Paul, right? So, you know, just a few examples of how this happened in, in, the, in the wider world of biblical scholarship is a recent, um, recent, probably in the last 30, 40 years, uh, groundswell or emphasis on the Jewishness of Jesus. That context was really important because scholars were putting a little too much of their own context, kind of post-Luther context, into this understanding of Jesus, Right. So, there's this back and forth mutual sharpening in the relationship between the author's intention and our reception. So, it's a relationship, and that's where meaning is found, in the relationship. So, just really quick to review, when we're reading our Bible, just very practically, we want to be able to think about, you know, in our minds, have a relationship with the author. What is Paul trying to get at? What's the literary context? What can I look around in other parts of this book? and try to figure out what Paul means, and what's the historical context, right? And there's a lot of good books, you know, you don't have to do that work. There's a lot of good books that talk about the background and context of the New Testament world, or Second Temple Judaism, or the ancient Near East. And you can read some of these contexts that help inform what the authors were probably trying to get at. But don't discount your own reading, and your own example, and your own life, and your own context. Because if the root, a biblical interpretation is author intention the fruit is reader reception and the reader's context matters just as the author's context matters and then though finally you know recognize this is a relationship there's no fixed meaning in the bible the author's intention can be fixed we you know the author intended something or didn't intend something that we can keep going at although we're limited because we can't go ask the author. So that's always a moving target. We're always tweaking it. We're always hopefully getting closer and closer, but we could never know because we could never go ask the author. So we have that, but we also have the relational part, which is us, the reader, in community, individually. And so we're constantly going back and forth, letting these sharpen each other. Um, the author's intention and what I'm learning about the context should shape how I read the Bible. It should influence it just like a, com- just like a conversation with someone will influence how I think. and then vice versa that, that what I'm learning may influence what I agree with or don't agree with when I read Paul and it may shape how I read the text <music> Well, thank you guys for bearing with me as we talk about some of these things that can feel a little abstract, but really are the, the basic building blocks that scholars now have used and created complicated theories on top of as they read the Bible and, and produce these wonderful books for us and come on podcasts like the Bible for normal people to teach us. So, we really appreciate you engaging with us and learning you know, one of those places is on Patreon. We have a group of people on Slack, several hundred people who are constantly talking about the Bible, and that's also this conversation and relationship about what the Bible means. It's, it's part of our context as other people, and so having them in that dialogue is really great. So, we hope to see you online. We hope to see you back here listening to the podcast next week. Thanks so much.